good morning. In case you haven't heard, I had emergency eye surgery this week. I'm not dressing up as a pirate for uh, Halloween. Yeah. Hey, big shout out to, to Rebecca. I can't see where she went. There you are. Love that. Matt and the Bolt family are in Texas uh, celebrating a, a wedding of one of our other former students, Maylie Augustine, as she's getting married. And so Rebecca came down from college to lead us this morning. Thank you very much in doing that. Hey, did you hear about the, uh, the conversation the pirate had with the sailor? <laughs> sailor asked, this has no spiritual importance at all, but I had to, I had to lead out with this. So sailor asked, uh, hey, how, how did you get that peg leg? And the pirate said, all right, I, I lost my leg when I wrestled a shark. And, and the sailor said, well, that's interesting. How, how, did you, how did you get the hook? And he said, all right, I lost, I lost my hand when I was fighting Redbeard. And the uh, sailor said, wow. I said, well, how, how did you get the eye patch? And he said, oh, I lost me eye when a seagull left his droppings in me eye. <laughs> and the sailor said, well, that's gross and not nearly as interesting as the other two. He said, oh, yes, but it was me first day with me hook. <laughs> so there you go. There is your pirate joke for today. So <laughs> it's terrible. I have a lot more of those. I've been hearing them for nonstop for a while here. I don't know how long I have to have this thing on, so you might be having to endure some pirate jokes for like a month or two. We'll see as this, as this goes on. But hey, I'm excited uh, to be with you. I do want to say a big welcome to Jared Price. Welcome back, buddy. Just got home from deployment. Excited to see you here, man. And then uh, the, the word on the street is, is Lawrence Decker, our other soldier on deployment right now. Should be back this week as well. And so we're excited to have him as back as well. So very cool. Thankful, thankful for you. Hey, we are going to continue on in our series in the book of Acts uh, that we have entitled Participants. And if you've been walking with us, we have, uh, we're finishing up chapter five this week, and it's been a powerful chapter in the story of the beginning of the church as God has empowered his people with his spirit to take the message of his son to the world. And, and we've seen it here in its very beginning forms that God is empowering them through the Holy Spirit, and he's been doing incredible works, but it has not been without its challenges for the third Third time we have seen Peter and John arrested and they've been brought before the Jewish leaders, the same people that had Jesus crucified. We saw last week this very passionate a speech given to the Sanhedrin by one of their own, Gamaliel, who encourages them, hey, if this is of God, you cannot stop this. And so we're going to pick up the story and we're going to finish out chapter five. Um, and and it, what is to me in, in an incredible chapter where we've had Ananias and Sapphira, we've had healings in the temple, the statement uh, that, that, that this passage that we're going to study this morning makes is perhaps the most amazing to me. So we're just going to pick up in verse 40 of chapter 5 and carry it through the end. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a Bible in the chair in front of you. Uh, join with, with us there. If you don't own a Bible, we would love, or you don't know where yours is, or, you, or you're welcome to take that one home. That's our gift to you. So starting in verse 40, and we'll just carry through the end uh, to 42. His speech, meaning Gamaliel's speech, persuaded them, the Sanhedrin, and they called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. 
Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. So let's just back that up a little bit. So they are going to let them go because they've been persuaded that, yeah, if this is from God, they cannot stop it. So they have them flogged. That's not a normal event in our life, so maybe that's lost on you. It's the same thing they did to Jesus when they beat him with the cat of nine tails, which was a long whip that had leather ends on the end of it that would have pieces of, of glass and bones and rock in it. And so they beat him with that, so they had him flogged. And as John and Peter are leaving the temple... Look at, look at verse 41. As they left the Sanhedrin, meaning they still had blood coming down off of their body from having been beaten and warned not to preach Jesus. As they were leaving, and this is to me one of the most shocking verses, they were leaving rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of the suffering and of the disgrace for the name. If there's not something inside of you that says, what? What? Now, I've never been flogged, but like, like you, we, we've all endured sufferings of different kind, right? And I cannot think of, a, think of a single time where my response to suffering has been leaving while in the very midst of the pain of that suffering, rejoicing. And so there's something in Peter and John that they have that we ought to long for. What is it that in the midst of our suffering, we cannot just fake joy, but we can have a very genuine joy that comes out of us that we can't even contain it, that even in the response of our hurting, even in the midst of, of, of life's trauma, we can rejoice. What is it that they have that we don't have? And I think the answer comes at the very end of this, of this passage. One of our elders texted me a couple weeks ago, and he was reading back over uh, Acts 5, and he pointed me to, to verse 42 and how this entire chapter ends, and I love it. The day after the day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming. So get that. They were beaten and told to not preach the name of Jesus, and still they never stopped preaching, they never stopped proclaiming that what? Jesus is is the Messiah. So what, what did they have that we don't have? I think they had utter, complete embracing to the reality that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, Messiah comes from, from an old Hebrew word that, that, that literally means the promised one, the anointed one. And the message of Scripture had long been that this world is not as it should be. And you don't have to preach that to any of us. We all believe that, right? That this world is broken. We experience heartache. It's not good. We, we ever, across all of, of creation, we know that to be the case. And in the midst of it, the Bible makes this promise that God was going to send someone who would bring about resolution to that problem, that he would bring about change, that he would bring about hope, that he would bring about life. And the word for this promised one in Hebrew was the Messiah. He was the prophesied one about. And so they were longing for this day. And they believed to the utter most parts of their being that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, why did they believe that? Well, because they had seen him crucified on a cross and then three days later had dinner with him. Right? And in sitting with the resurrected Jesus, Jesus began to explain to them who he was and what he came to do. And this is actually one of the most powerful testimonies to, to the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because one of, the great, one of the great accusations against the church is that this is all just made up. 
that, that in the aftermath of Jesus' death, the apostles just made up the story of the resurrection. And, and so the, the Jews accused him of that. The Romans accused him of that. You guys, you stole the body and, and you just made this up so, so that you can start the movement. Now, I don't know about you. Uh, we probably have all lied. I don't know a single lie I've made up that I would be willing to be flogged and beaten and eventually tortured and killed for. At some point, I'm admitting the truth, right? And if, especially if there were 12 of us that came up with a lie, one of us is cracking, <laughs> Right? It doesn't have to take much. And yet these 12 willingly, willing, willingly endured being flogged and still wouldn't stop. Tell me what sane person wouldn't stop when they were beaten to an inch of their life and told to no longer preach if what they believed in was a lie that they themselves made up. And yet they willingly kept on going. Why? Because they knew that Jesus is the Messiah. It was their truth. And because of that, they were able to endure life's hardship with something that you and I don't have. So here is, here is the message to us this morning, I think. That to the degree that we actually embrace this truth that we profess we believe in, that Jesus is the Messiah, we will experience peace in the midst of our hardships. We will experience joy in the midst of our hardships. To the degree that we actually embrace that Jesus is the Messiah, we will experience what these guys did, joy in the midst of our trials. And so let's, let's build that out and see how that's the case. We're going to do one of my favorite things to do. And that's, we're going to, we're going to, we did this a couple, a couple of weeks ago. We're going to have a little bit of an if-then clause of the gospel. If Jesus is the Messiah, then blank right? So if he is this, then blank. And I, I just want us to walk through this story and see how this comes to play for them and how it can come pl to play for you and I. So if Jesus is the Messiah, I think there's just three, we, we could fill in a lot of things in that blank, um, but because I'm a preacher, there's obviously going to be three things that I fill into that blank. <laughs> uh, so let's, let's start with, with the first one. If Jesus is the Messiah, then life is not about them. It's all about Jesus. Then life is not about them. It's all about Jesus. So in the aftermath of, of sitting with, with Jesus at a dinner table after Jesus has been dead and buried for three days, they come to this realization that life has nothing to do with them as the center point of it. That life has everything to do with Jesus Christ. Jesus explains to them, you can see it in John's writing in the beginning of John 1, that everything that was created was created through him. Can you imagine having dinner with the creator? And he said, I was there. I was there. I spoke creation into being and it was formed. And Jesus explains to him that not, not only did, they, did he create it, but he speaks it into sustaining and not only does he create it and sustain it, but he has come now to redeem it. And not only has he created it and sustained it and redeem it, but one day he will bring an end to it. And all that has lived will one day bow before and they will say the name of Jesus Christ. And none of that do I hear the name of Shelton Markham, right? Because life is not about me. And it's not about you. Life is Jesus's. It belongs to him and it's the central piece. And here's the great irony of the gospel. The promise of the gospel was from the start that when we would be willing to lose ourselves and stop trying to make life about us, we ironically will find life to be a joyful experience. 
right? Because everything in us says, no, no, no. I will have joy when everybody does what I want them to do, right? Isn't that what we kind of buy into? If you would just, I mean, how many married couples, don't raise your hand in here. I don't want to start a fight. <laughs> but come on, you all believe your marriage would be so healthy if that spouse would just do exactly what you want them to do the way you want them to do it, right? Don't nod your head. <laughs> Gets you in trouble. We buy into that. And we try to do it with God as well. And yet, here was Jesus' promise in, in, in Luke. Check out this promise in Luke chapter 9. Oh, you're good. Luke chapter 9. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. And that is the great irony of the gospel. And here's, here's can I just confess my own sinful heart? There's a part of me that doesn't want to hear that. And I like the gospel that says, hey, uh, just ask Jesus into your life and pray that Jesus will give you all the things that you want. I like the gospel that says, hey, I got a God that loves me. He's on my side. I can have my best life now if I just get all that I want the way that I want it. And so we turn Jesus into the waiter, right? Hey, God, go fetch me this, please. And from the start, Jesus says, no, 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 no. that's not the gospel invitation. Which, by the way, when we're explaining the gospel to children... And, or even to anybody. And, and we, I think we, we fail the gospel when we use the language, hey, invite Jesus into your life. No, no, no. The gospel is Jesus inviting you into his life. Amen. Right? That's, that's the gospel, is that he has opened up his heart and he's invited you into his life. Said, hey, come, come, come live it my way. And the great irony of the gospel is that when we give up trying to make life about us, and we give up this lie that if we just have it our way, we'll have joy. When we give that up and we say, okay, God, it's all about you. Then ironically, guess what we find in the, in the, in the bypass of that? Joy. Let me give you an analogy, a metaphor that, that helps me in this. Let's suppose you go to a wedding and you observe two type of wedding guests at this wedding. The first one loves the bride and groom. She cries when the bride comes in. She hoots and hollers when the, when the groom kisses the bride. She cheers when the reception host, the DJ, announces the new couple comes in. She's so excited to have all the food and the free drinks there. When the dance party begins and the DJ starts playing, she gets out on the dance floor and dances with the bride and groom until all hours of the night. She helps pass out the cake. She cheers when they cut it. She is so excited when they leave and get in the limo. She's blowing bubbles and just celebrating and hooting and hollering and she she goes home and she says, what a fun night. And her heart is filled. The second guest is sitting there and he seems uncomfortable from the start. He complains about how uncomfortable the chair is during the ceremony. He's frustrated because his sight of the bride and groom is impeded because he's got some tall idiot sitting in front of him. And when they announce he doesn't like the DJ's voice and the food was all too salty and the music was too loud and his seat at the reception was not in a place where he could see everything going on and the cake had far too much almond extract into it. <laughs> and when the bride and groom leave, they don't even bother to tell him bye. And he gets in his car and he goes home and he's just frustrated because the night did not live up to his standards. Two guests, the same party, two total different experiences. And what's the difference? One knew the night was all about the bride and groom, and they wanted to celebrate it. 
The other thought it was all about him. Can I tell you, dear Christian, you will constantly be frustrated if you think all of creation bends towards your will. But oh, how things change when we live to celebrate Jesus Christ. So these guys get flogged and they leave rejoicing because life's not about them. And they said, even in my being flogged, God is being glorified. Jesus Christ is being extended and they celebrate, they rejoice that they were worthy to, be, to suffer in the name of Jesus Christ. And let me tell you, if you think life is about you, then every suffering is going to be a woe is me moment. But when life is not about you, every suffering is an opportunity to point people to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It's just a change of, of perspective and it's paramount. If Jesus is the Messiah, then life's all about Jesus. Next one, if Jesus is the Messiah, then troubles are temporary. Troubles are temporary. Look what Peter himself, so the one that was flogged here in this story, in 1 Peter, he writes this about our troubles. He says, in his great mercy, meaning in, in, in God's great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. In all this, you greatly rejoice. And though now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, hey, if Jesus is the Messiah, then through the resurrection, God has secured for you an inheritance in heaven. I, I, I imagine him sitting there writing that down, thinking back to the dinner table discussion with Jesus himself. And Jesus telling him, do you remember the story at the end of John? It's actually a breakfast table discussion. At the, at the end of John, they're, they're, they're on the boat, and, and Jesus, they look up, and Jesus, the resurrected Messiah, is on the shoreline. And so Peter does like the captain, like the Forrest Gump thing, and where he jumps off the boat and swims to shore, right? Like, Captain Dan. And, and he swims into Jesus. <laughs> he swims to Jesus, and Jesus makes him, makes him breakfast, and he cooks some, some fish for him. You remember that's why we do the Galilean breakfast? It's a cool story. Do you remember what Jesus tells him? He said, get, get ready, Peter, because for a little while, Satan's going to sift you. I don't even know what that means. That sounds terrible. But he tells him it's okay. And I wonder, I wonder if in this moment when he's being flogged, he's going, hey, Jesus told me this would happen. But it's okay, because this is only temporary. For a little while, you'll have to suffer. But that's not my long-lasting story. My long-lasting story is that for eternity, I get the inheritance that Jesus has bought for me. My, my true story is that for eternity, I get the joy of God on full blast. So I, there, there's a couple ways I can view this annoying eye situation. It's my third surgery on this eye. I've been dealing with struggles from it since an injury 23 years ago. It's, it's annoying, and I guarantee it's not my last surgery. I don't get to see 2020 in it. There's, a, there's no amount of surgery that's going to fix that. And there's a part of me that just wants to go, woe is me. And you all know this whenever you go through suffering. I'm not the only sinful soul in this room that goes, looks around and goes, how come they get to have two good eyes? And I don't, right? right? And we start comparing, which, by the way, is foolishness. 
Everybody on this side of heaven, including Jesus himself when he lived on this side of heaven, suffers because this is a fallen world. And so the message is we can either look at our suffering and complain or we can say, hey, if this is just if this is my suffering for a little while, you know what the, the truth is? One day I'll have two great eyes to see God in his full glory, right? That'll be an awesome day. And that will be my true reality. Right now, do you know what this is? It's a present little temporary circumstance. It may last my whole life, and my life in the grand scheme of eternity is tiny, right? And so all this is is an opportunity to glorify Jesus. So they leave this moment being flogged, and they say, well, there goes that. <laughs> in the midst of their blood dripping down, let's glorify Jesus and get back to preaching Jesus. Why? Because this is a temporary hardship in the scope and in the shadow of an eternal joy that is promised to me. And if Jesus is Messiah and you actually believe in heaven that is secured for you, then it changes how you deal with the temporary hardships. And I'm not saying they're not hard. And I'm not saying suffering is not hard. But I am saying it's temporary. And I am saying that God knows exactly what suffering is like because even Jesus himself suffered which is why they considered it joy that they got to suffer like Jesus did for his, for his sake. And so there's an encouragement there saying, hey. And so the heart that is set on the Messiahship of Jesus says, hey, if this is what you want me to go through so that I can bring glory to Jesus, so be it. Let's do it. This is only temporary. And finally, if Jesus is the Messiah, then nothing can ever rob your source of joy. If Jesus is the Messiah, then nothing can ever rob you of your source of joy. Because here's, here's the reality. Before Jesus is your Messiah, you don't have the Holy Spirit in, in your life. You don't have the very creator of joy in your heart. So instead, you start looking for joy in temporary things, right? You start looking for joy in your health, in a work situation, in relationships. And what happens when those joys are taken away? Your joy is taken away, Right? And Jesus talks about this, when you store up your treasure and here on earth, and moth and rust can destroy and take away. He says, so I tell you to store up your treasure in heaven. It'll never wear away. When Jesus is your Messiah, then you have the source of joy forever with you. And no amount of hardships in this world could ever rob you of that. So what happens if, if, if my health is taken from me? That's okay. Because my health was never my source of joy. It was a blessing for a time that my source of joy gave me. But guess what? If that is taken away from me, it doesn't mean my joy. He can fill up another cup of, of joy. Let me, I call this joy in a cup. It is the black nectar of the gods and it's delicious. If this cup were taken from me, I might cry a little bit. But there are these beautiful people right out here who ensure that we will never run out of this sweet black nectar. And if my cup is emptied, or if this cup is taken from me, there's more cups and there's more black nectar to fill it up, right? And I am told I can drink deep until I start shaking too much, and then I need to cut it off. And right now, you might be in a season where your cup is filled 
And it might be filled with glorious relationships that you're thankful for. It might be filled with a job that you are thankful for. It might be filled with health that you are thankful for. And in some other season of life, those cups may be taken from you. But guess what? Those cups were never your source. They were only a season and time where you got to drink from the source. Does that make sense? The source itself is Jesus Christ. Cheers. (laughs) I, I went through a really hard season personally where I got to learn this. And I wanted to share with you guys something this morning. Um, so I, uh, this is about 10 years ago. I was, I was, I was at a, at a church. And I'm just, as a young guy, I had found my identity as a pastor. Anybody in here that's been in ministry, you know that feeling, right? And I, I liked when people liked me. <laughs> And I liked when people told me good job, and, and that's where I found my joy. And for the first time in my life, I went through a season where people were mad at me, and they were frustrated with me, and it, and it began to rock something. And then we had a very close family friend, a little baby that died, and then we had just several other relational issues going on in my family. And you know when you're in the middle of those things, and, and it just feels like the waves of life are crashing in on you like crazy. And I went through this really dark season of my life of, of, of just kind of depression and not knowing what to do um, and, and feeling like all the things that I found joy in were just being taken. And, it, and, you know, I was in the woe is me season. We've all been there. And I came across uh, a, a friend of mine encouraged me to read a book. Uh, some of you may, may have read it by Jim Cimbala named Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. If you never read Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, Jim Cimbala is the pastor of the Brooklyn Tabernacle in Brooklyn, New York. And it's the story of of the Brooklyn Tabernacle. It's a powerful, awesome story of what God does there in in the the story. And so I I grew up singing in choirs. I like that. Um, And so I I began listening to some Brooklyn Tabernacle choir. Uh, If you've never heard them, get ready. You're in for a treat. And I came across one of their songs. They didn't write it. Another lady did, but they have a rendition of it that I loved it called I Never Lost My Praise. And the heart of it is that I've lost lots of things, but I've never lost my source that allows me to have hope and joy and praise. So just for a way of encouragement and because it's beautiful, I just want to play a clip of that song for you. Is that okay? Good, because I'm in, I'm in control anyway, so we can do it. So, <laughs> so let's... Let's just watch this and listen to the words of what she says. And I love how she delivers this. I've lost some good friends along life's way. Some loved ones departed in heaven to stay. But thank God I didn't
first of all, the diversity of that choir is beautiful and something very heavenly in that. Um, but I, I love the heart of what she's saying. I've lost a lot in my life, but nothing in my losing in this life will ever strip me from the reality that Jesus is a Messiah. Therefore, I have never lost my source of joy. I have never lost my hope, and I have never lost my praise. I love that. I love that. For me, that's an anthem that a lot of times I go back to and sing in my own heart in seasons of struggles. You may have your own anthems that you would have. But here's what I know. When, when John and Peter are leaving and the blood is dripping down their shoulders, it says that they left rejoicing. Which to this world sounds crazy. But to those that embrace Jesus as the Messiah, it actually makes a lot of sense. And so they left, and no amount of flogging could ever stop them from going door to door, from proclaiming, even in the temple courts, it says, going back to the very place where they were beaten and told to not speak his name. They went right back at it, and they continued to proclaim, and they never stopped teaching because they never stopped embracing that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the source of hope. He is the promised one through whom life comes. And so what I want to do this morning is just to end with some celebration of that. I don't know what season of life you may be in. You might be in a season of great joy. Or maybe you're feeling like them and life has just been beating you down lately. But here is the promise, dear Christian. Jesus is the Messiah. And no amount of what life throws your way can rob you of that. And actually, this current season, as hard as it is, is actually a chance for you to proclaim that even louder. It's why Scripture says that we can have a peace that surpasses understanding. Because it makes sense when we have peace when there are no troubles. But Christians are these weird people that have peace in the middle of troubles. But we do it because we know that Jesus is the Messiah. And so we turn our focus to Him. So let me pray over us this morning, and we're just going to proclaim his Messiahship together. We're going to proclaim that he is the one in whom we have hope. He is the one in whom we have placed our joy. Heavenly Father, as we gather in this place, we do so in just deep confession that we are not perfect by any means, that we all carry with us wounds of our own shame and our own guilt, we all carry with us wounds from this world. Many of us in right now are in seasons that we don't understand, that cause us to be frustrated, God. And so I just pray for this deep perspective shift of our soul, a gift from your spirit, Father, that we would see that all of this is about you. That this is all, even, even our present circumstances, no matter how hard it is, is about you. God, even, even the joyful things that we get to celebrate right now, the, the relationships we're so thankful for, a healthy marriage, it's about you and their opportunities to proclaim you, Jesus. So, Father, I pray you mark us with the resurrection like you did Peter and John, that we would be Jesus' people down to our core, that we would see everything as an opportunity to, to celebrate you, to rejoice in you, even our sufferings, because we know they're only temporary. And so we praise you and thank you, God, that you have prepared for us an inheritance. And we don't even know what that means, but we know that it was so important to you that you sent Jesus to die that we might have it. So, Father, we long for that. We look forward to that day. 
And in the meantime, Father, we pray that you grant us a ministry like you did Peter and John, that we would proclaim Jesus as Messiah to our own selves, to our neighbors, <coughs> to our friends, Father, to our family, that we, to the world around us, God, that you would enable us to just be Jesus people. Jesus, thank you for overcoming this world, and so we take heart in that. You are the hope. You are the one, Father. Spirit of God, I pray that as we proclaim you, Jesus, as Messiah, that you would do a work across this room. That in those places where we are looking to other things for our joy and our hope, that you would tear down those idols. And in the ways that we have lost hope and, and, and think that you are powerless and impotent, God, that you would remind us of the power of the empty tomb and the promise of heaven. That we would rest in that. That nowhere did you promise for Christians it would always be easy. And we see it from the beginning that Peter and John were flogged. They did suffer. And yet you did promise that even in the uneasiness of life, we could have joy. And we could have peace. And so, Father, we just give ourselves to you for that end. Mark us with the Jesus Messiah heart. And we give ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.